Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson. I am the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, as we record this, it is Super Bowl Sunday. Um, I'm not by any means a huge football guy, but you know what they say, as soon as soon as the, the big game is over, uh, they always say, well, the calendar is flipped, it is now baseball season, so that makes it a day worth celebrating in my mind. How, how are you doing? Yeah, I feel the same. I'm going to enjoy the, the Super Bowl, going to make some fresh guacamole, it's that kind of day. But then, yes, um, which leads us to, like, what the heck is going on with Scott Boris and those big free agents he represents? Because camp's going to start soon. It's already started for the Dodgers. I think the Padres is starting uh, this week um, up next, and then a bunch of uh, all the rest of the team's pitchers and catchers are reporting. So it, we're getting to the point of the season where, um, or the offseason, where if you don't have a club, you start to get nervous. I know those guys at the top of the market with Boris, he's he's a master at sort of reassuring them and playing the long game. But at a certain point, you got it's a staring contest, right? And at some point, somebody's going to break. And I got a feeling it's going to be the players, uh, despite Boris, because their prices have to come down. That's been obvious all offseason. So if they're asking for too much, there's too many question marks with some of those guys like Snell and Bellinger. And you have Montgomery, who's been waiting it out for some reason, and Chapman, which is his market still seems unclear. Boris always aims high and waits and hopefully gets his price. I don't think he's going to this time. So to me, that's like the number one thing I'm watching right now. Yeah, we've kind of run out of excuses at this point, right? Yeah. Like we we talked about the Diamond Sports, Bally Sports, whatever you want to call it, um, TV and media rights issue. And that seems like it's getting sorted out. You know, and, and it's not 100% finalized yet, but I believe the judge like approved the deal that they had come to. And so now it's just kind of the formalities of it all. But basically, you know, the Twins, the Rangers, a couple other Guardians, I think were in that mix. Um, they now have a much more certain financial future, at least in like the short to medium term. And so... You looked at the Rangers as a team that wanted to bring back Jordan Montgomery and have been in touch with him all offseason, but you could kind of blame the uncertainty of their financial situation for why it hasn't happened, and now that excuse is gone. And the other excuse that could have been used, which we'll talk about in just a minute here, is, oh, there's you know other pieces that need to fall into place, other free agents, other trades that might happen, and you know it's going to be kind of a domino effect. Once one thing goes, the rest will go. Well past couple weeks we've seen a lot of dominoes fall and um uh, i think this analogy just fell apart i guess i guess the rest of the dominoes didn't fall with them but let's put it that way yeah i get the sense even with the whole rsn fiasco that budgets are pretty close to set you know what i mean i don't think there's a whole lot of space there i mean maybe the giants have some space maybe the cubs i don't think anybody wants to spend all that much is what i'm trying to say and these guys are, I mean, so Boris is holding out for, you know, a big, a big contract for a bunch of these guys. And, and I don't know if there's like appetite to spend on them. And so I think we're going to be looking at some serious reduction in prices pretty darn soon. Like in, like, like it's got to start happening now. Yeah. And I'm most concerned about Bellinger in that territory mm -hmm. because, you know, anybody can find a room on a spot on their roster for Blake Snell or Jordan Montgomery, right? Even if you think they're asking for number two money and they're more of a number three type guy, like you can find a happy medium, fit him into the budget, fit him into the roster and be happy with it. And there's five or six teams that 
can conceivably do that budget-wise and also have a need in the rotation, like at least five or six, I would say. And so all it takes is one of them, you know, crossing the finish line there and, and giving that extra couple million a year or whatever it ends up being and getting the deal done. So that's, you know, I'm not worried about them, you know, not signing or going into the season itself unsigned or having to take some sort of one-year pillow deal or anything like that. Um, and then Chapman's also kind of an interesting case because he's a third baseman and there's a few of those larger teams that do kind of need a third baseman and, and, you know, he checks off a lot of boxes and has a decently high floor with the defense. And then Bellinger is just this question mark. Like there aren't many teams left that truly need him. It's kind of just the Cubs or like maybe if you squint the Blue Jays, they've been connected to him, but it doesn't really make the cleanest fit there and you know i think that the mariners would love to have him but not for that price the yankees made eh, eh. like the, you're, you're getting into like real long shot territory and i i listed four team names there <laughs> like right there just and, aren't many suitors for him at this point he i think he waited too long uh, yeah and i don't understand the blue jays fit because they signed kiermaier right and his whole thing is he's a great defensive center fielder right so where are you going to put Bellinger? And you got Vladdy at first. Those are his typically two. So you're you're going to put Bellinger at left, maybe, which is a lesser defensive uh, position. But then you're like, well, why are we paying top dollar for for that position that which could easily be filled by somebody which who costs a lot less, you know? So Adam Duvall, you know, he's not the same player, but and couple that with the question marks of Bellinger. I don't know. If you're signing him to be your left fielder, you're not going to pay all that much given his, his uncertainty. And then with the Cubs, you've got one of the top prospects in baseball, Pete Crow Armstrong, also with an amazing uh, defensive reputation as your sort of center fielder of the future. So would you want to spend a whole lot of money on a center fielder like Bellinger? Did you put him at first? I guess you could put him at first, but then at first base is a lower defensive position, so you don't want to overspend for that either. You see where the predicament is here. Like, what? what is his market exactly? Yeah, I, I think the Blue Jays' argument, or I guess the reason that you might see a connection there, is they have this boatload of money that they tried to spend on Otani, tried to spend on Yamamoto, tried to spend on you know Juan Soto in, in a trade for him and picking up his larger salary. And so just connecting the dots, it's like, well, they, they missed on three big splashes. Well, maybe they can make this one happen and kind of take advantage of how his market never really developed. But you're right. Like, it doesn't fit the roster. And their roster is already kind of strangely crowded. They've had a really weird offseason, in my opinion, where you're right. They brought back Kiermaier, which I think is fine. I think they like him there. But they also brought in Isaiah Kiner-Falefa for some reason. And I still don't really get that one um they they just brought in justin turner and he's gonna dh maybe play a little bit of first a little bit of third but like the infield's getting crowded there's not really a ton of room for matt chapman to come back now because they decided to sign isaiah kiner falefa for some reason <laughs> it makes me laugh I don't know yeah yeah if if we were sitting here and you said okay the blue jays have more money than they expected to and you know their roster's still kind of in that good not great position and let's let's you know, take advantage of the way the market has developed and grab a guy, you know, maybe a little cheaper than he was asking back in November. That guy should have been Matt Chapman. Like, even if you have some questions about Matt Chapman, he just fits that team a lot cleaner, or at least he did before some of these other moves. 
Yeah. Um. So I I don't <laughs> I don't know what's happening there. I don't know. It's it's, it's really just the kind of Falafa thing. <laughs> so what I what I my take is, um, teams are getting fed up with Boris and like no we're not going to pay your price. So they go out and sign, you know, Justin Turner for DH for thirteen million for one year or whatever because you know they figure he's dependable. I know he's old and in decline, but he can still hit a bit. So right. So so they're saying okay, a lot of these smaller moves are like yeah you know what, we're done. We're just going to go down the list. We're going to get uh, a one-year deal here, one-year deal there. That's not going to cost us much. Call us if your price drops, and maybe we'll find a room for find room for him. But I think that's where we're at. Teams have moved on. And and so I, I, I know Boris is Boris, and he always finds a way, but there have been times when he's had to settle, and he's he's got to settle because clearly the ball's in his court for dropping the price. That's got to happen at this point. I will drop a dark horse, and I think it's the Phillies. Um, we've we've heard a little bit of buzz on them that they're kind of monitoring the free agent pitching market, um, but they also just lost Brandon Marsh to an injury. It it's, doesn't seem to be anything too serious. It'll keep him out a few weeks, and what they're saying as of now is that it's not going to put his opening day in question, but they already kind of had a thin outfield before that. And, you know, is it the cleanest fit? No, they have Schwarber and Castellanos locked up there, not to mention Bryce Harper. Like, there's not a clean fit there for Bellinger by any means, but we're, we've just been talking 14 different ways about how there's not really a clean fit for him anywhere. And if you want to kind of connect the dots between Scott Boris and Dave Dombrowski as a guy who will always take advantage of when the market kind of dips like this and and isn't afraid to kind of come out of nowhere with a move that doesn't make the most sense on paper, but makes his team better. I don't hate the fit there. I think it makes more sense yeah. for them to go after one of the arms, but I don't hate the fit there. If, if we're really kind of stretching the imagination. I, I think that's a great point. I do, you know, I'm not, so, you know, I, I love Rojas in center field for his defense. His bat is still a big question mark. He's not projected to be a big hitter, right? So, He's more of a fourth outfielder type, in which case, if you really want to bat in center field, Bellinger makes a lot of sense. I can see that completely. Well, we'll have to see. I would be pretty shocked if we record again two weeks from now and none of these guys have signed. But then again, I'm pretty shocked that none of these guys have signed in the past two weeks since our last episode. So we will have to wait and see. Um, but as far as moves that did happen, we have a whole lot to talk about today. Um whole lot of moving and shaking in a lot of different areas and let's start with honestly to me the most surprising of the bunch and that's the Orioles acquiring Corbin Burns uh, this kind of came out of nowhere it did on the last episode we both agreed that yep it looks like the Brewers aren't trading Corbin Burns they just signed Reese Hoskins and that's not a move you do if you're going to turn around and trade Corbin Burns and then uh, they gave us the middle finger and turned around and traded Corbin Burns and that was great what are they doing, um, Josh? I don't. I still don't understand the Brewers at all. What are they doing? I don't either. I don't fully get the plan here. I mean, I I get it, but I also don't. Let's let's get into it. So, okay, Corbin Bird's trade. Uh, he goes to the Orioles. We had him at thirty-three point three million in surplus for just the one year of team control. Uh, in exchange, the Brewers get left-handed pitcher D.L. Hall at eighteen point nine million. Shortstop Joey Ortiz at thirteen point six million, and a competitive balance round A pick at four million. And this was accepted by the model, so a pretty good win for the model, and that's 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 nice to see, uh, especially for such a difficult situation to really put a put a value on when when you get to Burns. And 
you know, it's always tough with these like superstar rentals. We always get a lot of criticism for, oh, this player's too low, but it's because they're only on the one year of team control remaining. And usually in that scenario, it's an expensive year of team control. It's their last year of arbitration or their last year of some pre-arb deal. And, and that's always the most expensive year. So there's a lot of factors working against Burns, not to mention that his performance has kind of declined the last couple years since his big Cy Young season. He's still very good. I don't think anybody's really betting against him there, but I don't think he's necessarily going to be expected to be an eight-win arm or anything like that, like he was his Cy Young year. So some limiting factors there for Burns, but still for a one-year player, $33 million in surplus is pretty significant. And then the return package for the Brewers, it seems very clear here that they prioritized big league-ready talent. Um, D.L. Hall is interesting. He's got big stuff, and he used to project very well as a starting pitcher, but now um, a couple injuries and some command issues later. It's kind of borderline. There's some people who see him as kind of a, a Josh Hader wipeout relief ace. And there's some people that say, hey, we think we, if you think he can still click in the rotation with that stuff, you're looking at maybe like a mid-rotation guy. And if he's going to be your centerpiece for Corbin Burns, I think you're going to give him every shot he can at, at being that mid-rotation guy. And reportedly, that's what the Brewers are doing. Um, but you also can't necessarily expect him to step in day one and be ready to throw... 150 160 170 innings that you're losing from burns so uh, we'll get we'll get to that in a minute i think of how the uh, the brewers might backfill the rotation after losing burns um but the other key piece in the deal joey ortiz really seems like an interesting player he's also kind of divisive because up until 2023 he was really you know glove and speed first kind of guy and then the bat really took a step forward in 2023 and he started to hit the ball with some authority and so it's a question of how much that sticks. Um, some evaluators say he's going to be a plus shortstop. Some say, eh, he might move to second base. Um, but it seems like there's he's a talented player, and he was not cracking that Orioles infield anytime soon with all of the elite talent that they have there. So he made a lot of sense for them to trade. And with the Brewers potentially losing Willie Adamas, either to a trade or to free agency this upcoming offseason, uh, it makes all the sense in the world that they would want to look at a infielder to help fill that slot. They have a lot of young outfielders in the system and not quite as deep on the infield. So this potentially helps safeguard them in case they lose Adamas. So on paper, you know, just looking at the players in the trade going in each direction makes a ton of sense. But when you zoom out a bit and look at the rest of the Brewers roster and the moves they've made this offseason, it's strange. It's puzzling. Yeah. So, all right. So here's my, so first of all, looking at the, the deal itself. So yes, it was a win for the model. We had um, total, as you mentioned, burns at 33.3, the total package going back at 36.5. Uh, so yeah, very close. A um, couple thoughts. Um, I think, you know, and this came out, you know, after the trade was, was announced, you know, they're looking to cat the Brewers are a very smart organization. Matt Arnold, who runs the show there, um, knows how to sort of, you know, um, kind of do what the Rays are doing, which is sell high, high on a guy that is on an expiring contract and then backfill with a younger version of that guy. So they're hoping that D.L. Hall turns into the younger version of that guy. They have been known, the Brewers are very good at developing pitching. They have a bit of a factory there. They develop Burns himself and Woodruff and Peralta. They turned him from a reliever into a quality starter. 
Devin Williams, obviously, they found the, the key for him. So they they know what they're doing in terms of pitching. So I do have confidence they can turn Hall into a starter, given his live arm and stuff. Um, and Ortiz makes perfect sense as well, because he's, as you said, the, the future replacement for Adamas, who now may be on the block. Um, it was interesting, though, that, that, you know, behind the scenes, there's always stuff going on. You know, GMs are always talking to each other. Even though it's reported that, oh, yeah, Burns is probably going to stay with the team and they're unlikely because they're going to compete. You know, all joking aside, I do see it from the Brewers' perspective. They're trying to thread the needle between uh, being competitive this year in a fairly weak division and maximizing their sort of longer term. Because if they didn't trade Burns, you know, all they would end up with is they'd queue up him and get a draft pick. Oh, hey, look, they just got a draft pick. So that essentially replaces that part of the deal. And from the Orioles' perspective, on the draft pick point, um, you know they're going to QO Burns now that they have him, and look, they'll get that draft pick back as well. So it makes perfect sense. And, and you know, obviously, a lot has been made of, you know, they can really afford because they have such a deep farm and so many, so many prospects that they're not even going to miss Hall. They're not even going to miss Ortiz because he's blocked. So it's it's really a good trade from their perspective, and they need that top of the rotation guy to kind of, with some maturity and some experience, to lead them you know, to the next level. They won 101 games in 2023. They want to go a little bit farther into the postseason. They could win it all. They need that that sort of, you know, that's the type t- classic move you do when you've got a bunch of young, talented kids, frankly, on the roster, and you need some adults to kind of help, help drive them over the top. So I think they'll continue to look at opportunities like that and come the deadline, they'll probably be buyers as well. I'm sure they'll be buyers as well, looking for that sort of, you know, addition as well. So, I think it makes sense totally, obviously, from the Orioles' perspective. It makes sense from the trade value perspective, and it makes sense. I'm talking myself into it from the Brewers' perspective. I'm squinting, but yeah, I, I guess I get it. Yeah, I, I guess I get the move on its face, and maybe I'm just making too much of Reese Hoskins, but the timing's just... I mean, I, I think everyone can agree. It's not controversial to say the timing is weird to to sign Reese Hoskins to a two-year deal and then, like, a week later, go flip your ace. Um, And plenty of speculation still about Adamus, and I could honestly see it going either way. You know, he would really be a significant improvement on the infield for a team like the Dodgers. Um, And, you know, do the Brewers pull the trigger on a deal now do they wait and see you know oh maybe another team loses their shortstop in spring training or do they ride him into the season and and try and like you're saying like thread the needle and contend um and then if things don't work out then he's probably the top shortstop available at the deadline um so so they have options there and i don't think there's an urgency necessarily to make a move i think they can kind of wait it out but i see the picture looking at this roster i see the vision here of we have a like this huge wave of young talent that's coming in. Let's see what we can do, and maybe they click early, and maybe 2024 is another year of contention for us. If not, you know we're at least going to put together a decent product on the field, and we're going to see some growth from some of these young guys. And we have a couple veterans left on the roster that could be trade chips. And you know 2025, we should be looking really strong once. Jackson Chorio and Sal Frelick and Garrett Mitchell each have a full big league season under their belts. So I get that. But Reese Hoskins doesn't really fit into that timeline, right? Like they, they signed Gary Sanchez and they signed Jacob Junis in the past couple weeks. Um, and, you know, Sanchez 
a bit of a weird fit himself just because they already have William Contreras at catcher and they signed Eric Haas to a deal earlier this offseason. And so this this might bump Haas off the roster. Um, not not a huge deal there. Catching depth is always good to have, but uh, not not the cleanest fit for Gary Sanchez, but at least it's like, okay, this this guy hit for a lot of power during his time with the Padres last year. And the Brewers have an excellent reputation for developing catchers defensively. And so let's see what we can do here. Let's see if we can get some value out of Gary Sanchez on just a free one-year deal, basically. And then Jacob Junis, there's things to like about him as well. And if you need to fill some innings after trading a Corbin Burns, then you could do worse, I guess. And so those two I'm, I'm pretty fine with. But Hoskins is a weird deal where it's a year and then a player option. And so if you're looking at kind of threading the needle in 2024 and then hopefully contending in 2025, that doesn't really line up with the timeline of his deal. He's only got one year guaranteed. If he's good, he's going to opt out and you don't have him on that 2025 team that you want to be more competitive. And if he's bad, he doesn't opt out and you have his potentially sunk salary on the 2025 team that you want to be contending. So I don't quite get that one. It feels a little over-aggressive to me. I feel like they could have just gone for a one-year... I mean, they, they could have taught Gary Sanchez first base or something. You know, they, they, could, have, they could have gone for a one-year deal with a lesser name. Um, and it, it better fits their timeline. I know that they've been really rotating first basemen for the last handful of years. And it yeah. probably just felt good to get their guy. And, yeah. and this is definitely the best of those guys that they've had during this kind of carousel. But that one just, it doesn't feel like it matches the rest of their moves. I'll put it that way. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But mostly I was just going to make that same point. First base has been, you know, like you said, a carousel for them. They just want solidity. They want an upgrade there, a guy they can count on. Now, obviously, he's coming off a major injury. So can you be on him? I, but, you know, it's not the type of industry that uh, injury that typically, you know, ruins a career. It Usually it's like, okay, you're healed, come back rehab get stronger and you're good i have a funny feeling that's what's going to happen here which is why that option is in place because if if you know if hoskins does what he typically does he's going to be worth more than that player option and he will opt out um so yeah i mean it's a yeah effectively they only have him for one year of their control um but it is an upgrade of over most of what they've been cycling through there so i kind of get it and we have him with a little bit of surplus value, which means they paid a little bit less for him than what the field value would be. So there's a little bit of that bargain bargain thing going on there too. You know what else doesn't make sense to me that, that I just remembered? Is this team also traded Adrian Hauser for a bag of peanuts. That one like... I still remember. We were like <laughs> scratching our heads about that one because I don't yeah. get that. I mean, all and... I can figure is they needed depth and options. I mean, because you can't option him. So maybe <laughs> maybe that was the driving factor. But looking at what they and, and you know, there's a bit of a revisionist history happening here, right? I don't think they knew exactly what was going to happen with regards to Hoskins or to Burns or anything else about the rest of their offseason when they made that move. But you kind of have to think forward. And looking at this roster right now, Adrian Hauser, as you know, back end of a starter as he is, is at least the third best starter in this rotation. If he were still on the team, like. I'd comfortably put him above Colin Ray, D.L. Hall, and Jacob Junis, and then it's just a question of Adrian Hauser or 37-year-old Wade Miley. And so 
that just gives you that gives you more of that depth of hey if dl hall doesn't work out we can try him in the bullpen first or if colin ray doesn't work out because he's far from a sure thing he can be kind of our swing man uh, or or you even option dl hall and let him stretch out in in the minors if you need him to it just gives you more flexibility yeah and at the time the only other explanation we could really come up with for that deal was oh they're trying to save money but why <laughs> like yeah. why why are we trying to save money by trading the Mark Cannas and Adrian Hausers of the world so that we can sign Reese Hoskins, but then also turn around and, tr- and save money by trading Corbin Burns, but then turn around and sign Gary Sanchez and Jacob Junis. I don't, <laughs> I don't understand it. Um, you know, the Brewers have proved me wrong before, but that was under David Stearns. Not nothing. I'm not trying to, to say anything negative here about Matt Arnold, but I don't think he's, he hasn't quite, earned you know that that kind of raise level of all right this doesn't make sense to me but i'll let it play out because i trust this guy he's not Mm -hmm. quite in that like category for me and i think that means that i'm going to question kind of the order of operations for this entire offseason here and and what's what looks like this really in-between roster that's left over after yeah the first two more points then we'll move on so first one is um i agree about the rotation still some question marks like freddie peralta basically is your number one starter but he's a converted reliever who has not had the healthiest of track records in terms of health so you can't totally count on him wade miley is 37 has had some health issues and then you down to Junis, and who's converted reliever Colin Ray, who's a journeyman, and D.L. Hall, who's a project. So like, what, you know, what are you doing there? And there's not really any depth below that. So maybe you bring up Robert Gasser. I don't know. Then so it's full of question marks, right? And you typically need more than uh, you, you need at least seven starters to get through a season. So I think they need at least one more sort of certain starter. So you could maybe see them being in the market for a Lorenzen or one of those types of guys um, who can at least give you some innings. Um, that's the first point I want to make. Second point is getting back to Cor- Corbin Burns' valuation in our model. Um, so um, that 33.3 surplus number, is the math is is that he's making 15.6 in salary this year. So that's how much the Brewers saved in salary by trading him. And what we're basically saying is he's worth, his field value is 48.8 uh, or so. Um, the... If you think about it, and like if he were a free agent and he signed a one-year contract, forty-eight point eight million would send a new would set a new record. So we're already very much on the high side. But it gets into this weird sort of area where, like, um, you know, it's hypothetical, right? Because it, in general, it should match the market. But sometimes in trade scenarios, like the Juan Soto trade, it went way over even our hypothetical sort of field value number. 48.8 is pretty good, I think, and fair, and includes the QO draft pick of, of like what Burns is worth, given the fact that you, the point you made earlier, how he's not quite the same guy he was a year or two ago. So, like, okay, would you pay 48.8 million on the open market for one year Burns? It's a stretch, right? So, we're already kind of like in that territory on the high side. Just wanted to point that out. Um, but the deal, but we know that starting pitching there, you got to factor in supply and demand. We know. You know, he's one of the best options in the market, given the situation with Boris and, you know, Snell and Montgomery and who you else going to get. You know, what are your other options if you're the Orioles? So you're going to look at that and say, yeah, that's fair. So that's the way we sort of, I mean, the numbers are sort of the numbers and where our model calculates them. And so, but what I'm saying is gut check wise, would you pay one million, one, would you pay 48.8 million for one year burns on the open market? Maybe, but it's a bit high. But, you know, it makes sense because that's how it netted out. 
Yeah, and the one thing to point out on that one is our real data points that we have to go off of are late 30s, early 40s, Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer. Like those are kind of the high points for AAV for a starting pitcher. And so there's there's a bit of apple and apples and oranges there. Like we don't have a data point to compare against of, oh, this is what teams offer a 29-year-old ace on a one-year free agent deal. Mm-hmm. Like that just doesn't happen. So there is kind of some extrapolating that has to go there. And, and you can say, yeah, a Scherzer or a Verlander got like 35 to 40 AAV, but they're also expected to decline, have some more injury risk in there that Burns might not. And then, oh, but they have the longer track record than Burns. So it's yeah. it's all kind of yeah. ballpark, just like, just like what is, I, I don't want to say it's, it's all gut feel or anything like that, but it's all kind of um, comparing to the, to the only real reference point we have for uh, these super high AAV short-term deals. But in that context, I think it does make sense that, that you know, if Burns hit the open market right now and only wanted a one-year deal, he would probably make more than Scherzer or Verlander did in their short, short-term short high AAV deals because of all of the points in his favor, especially the youth and health. And so it makes sense that, yeah, yeah. somewhere around 50, that's not unrealistic, I don't yeah, think. Yeah, I mean, the only other maybe comp that comes to mind is Trevor Bauer's $40 million deal with the Dodgers before Trevor Bauer's off-field issues emerged. Uh, you remember that whole off-season where it was a little bit crazy? Um, you know, and it was the Dodgers. But there was also sort of the one-year sort of aspect. Well, it, I think it was more than one year. But um, but nonetheless, it's sort of in that zone where, like, yeah, okay, I could see it. And Corbin Burns, who has no off-field issues, um, you know, would he get more than 43 that Verlander and Scherzer got? Maybe on a one-year deal, and because he's younger, yeah, all right. So it, my point is, it's just a gut check. Our model is our model. It's calculating the numbers hypothetically, and we're saying, yeah, does that make sense? And yeah, well, we're basically saying, yes, it, it passes the smell test, is what we're saying. Right, absolutely. Um, let's stick with the Orioles. We we talked a lot of Brewers there. Um, we we need to at least mention that the Angelos family has agreed to sell the Orioles, and that's. You know, I we can't guarantee that there's a one-to-one relationship between the team, the the agreement to sell the team to um, a couple of private equity billionaires, David Rubenstein and Mike Arrighetti. Um, Rubenstein has been the most public of the two, and and he's like a, a lifelong Baltimore fan, and it's a whole ownership group that includes Cal Ripken Jr. and some other folks. Um, so this this seems like a case of the Angelos family, who have kind of held the Orioles captive a little bit over the past couple of decades, selling to a wealthier group, and only time will tell, you know, if this is a Steve Cohen or if it's a Bruce Sherman. Um, probably somewhere in the middle, but it's hard to it's hard to dismiss the fact that this sale goes through, and two days later they're trading for Corbin Burns after a whole off season of very little activity like i don't i don't want to call it a one-to-one i don't want to say that you know rubenstein's first decision as an owner was go get corbin burns i i don't think we that's a fair call to make but interesting coincidence at least um and and maybe more than a coincidence that once there's a a new cash flow and, and somebody else behind the books that they make this first big win now move that they've really made in this current contention window yeah, I mean, I saw a report that said the two are unrelated. It was just a coincidence of timing. Um, and that's probably true. 
Um, but it's hard not to sort of speculate and say, okay, well, you know, there's a fog that's been lifted in a way. Like if they felt constrained by the current ownership, like, I don't know if we can afford that or blah, blah, blah. Like sometimes there's that hesitation because, you know, the boss is very sort of strict about budget or, you know, what, what he'll approve or not. You know, now that the boss has sold to a new boss, he may have just lightened up a little bit. You know, okay, do what you got to do. So, you know, that's probably the best explanation I got. But it's great for the Orioles long term. I, I think um, Rubenstein and you know, the guys you mentioned will, I have, I, you know, don't know them personally or obviously anything, but, but I do think that given the fact that he's a lifelong Orioles fan, he seems to be well-intended to do the best thing for the team. So it makes sense that he's going to longer term you know, uh, you know, give the green light on, you know, maybe a bigger budget, you know, things that will help the Orioles win. And it's perfect timing because, you know, Michael Elias has built a really strong core of young talent there. So you can see them being good for a while. And now we basically have, you know, an owner who will give him the green light to augment that core. So I think it's very bright future for the Orioles and the Orioles fans. Yeah, there's, there's the kind of dichotomy here of, private equity guy buys the team and kind of the whole deal with private equity is you, you take over a business and you cut costs where you can and just do everything you can to make the business more profitable sometimes at the cost of of the quality of the business at least that's kind of my understanding of of the private equity mindset um so that's kind of concerning to hear at first glance that sounds a lot like john fisher in oakland um but then the flip side of it is this dude's in his 70s. Like like we've said, he's a lifelong Orioles fan, and it's an ownership group that includes Cal Ripken Jr. Like, that doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would come in and just tear it down to the studs to make a quick buck on this. Like, yeah. at this point in your life and with the, the presumed connection you have to the city and to the team, um, it seems closer to the latter. I don't think we want to start heralding this as Steve Cohen 2.0 any, anytime soon. But I think, like I mentioned earlier, on the scale of Steve Cohen to Bruce Sherman, I think it's probably closer to Cohen. So two points here. Um, so the Orioles were not sold to the Carlisle Group, which is the private equity firm that Rubenstein runs, right? If it was sold to the, the Carlisle Group, then it would be owned by the private equity firm, and then they would put their methodology into it. But that's not what's happening here, just to clarify it for everybody's sake. It's David Rubenstein the person not not the the company right so he's the he's the guy so he has his own reasons for doing it and it's similar to peter seidler in uh, san diego who also was a private equity guy but he bought the team using the money that he made um and mark walter of the dodgers is also uh, i believe a private equity guy um the primary owner so um so i think we can rest assured that it's um you know and to all the points you made, Rubenstein is in the 70s. It's kind of similar to the Seidler situation. Don't want to speculate on his health or anything. But, um, but yeah, there's there's some guys who reach a point in life like, oh, I always wanted to own a baseball team. And now I'm going to do it because I'm just going to enjoy it. Some guys own racehorses. Some guys own football team, whatever, yachts. You know, they're going to enjoy their life at this point in time. So I think the, I think you can make a case that his, his best, you know, he's – He's doing it for the re the right reasons for the best interest of the team. Yeah, yeah, all good points there. Mm -hmm. uh, let's move on to the Mariners acquiring Jorge Polanco in who oh boy, what an overpay, <laughs> at least according to the model here. Uh, so the Mariners get Jorge Polanco, second baseman uh, from the Twins at $9.4 in surplus. 
Uh, in exchange, they send the Twins outfielder Gabriel Gonzalez at 11.0, right-handed pitchers Justin Topa at 7.0, and Darren Bowen at 0.4, as well as Anthony Desclafani at negative 1.1, and cash, reportedly $8 million. So quite, quite lopsided here. It's a uh, it's 9.4 to the Mariners and doing some quick mental math. It's something in like 25, 26-ish range uh, headed to the Twins. 25.3. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> that's certainly something. Yep. Um, the the Mariners have been shuffling pieces around all offseason and clearly needed a bat. We talked about it last time and honestly the past few episodes of how how badly they needed an infield bat that they could really trust. And Jorge Polanco is that, and he comes with an extra year of team control. And so there's, there's a lot to like about Polanco, the player, he's a switch hitter, brings some on base ability, some power, you know, not a great defender, but he's not the worst either. I mean, it, it depends what, what defensive metrics you prefer, but he's at least a capable second baseman. We can, we, I think that's a good word to use. Um, and, and he just lengthens up that lineup and they can slot him in right near the top and, and be pretty content with it. Um, so there's a lot to like about Polanco on his face. However, he's making a good bit of money over those two years and he's had some injury concerns the last couple seasons. And he is just a second baseman and a poor defensive one at that. And we've talked about kind of the negative adjustment that second basemen get and how they don't necessarily get their full value most of the time. And then you start to look at the package that they gave up for him of Gabriel Gonzalez, who's like a fringe top 100 prospect for some publications, Justin Topa, who was a really good reliever for the Mariners last season, um, kind of a lottery ticket in Darren Bowen. And then, yeah, Anthony Desclafani's underwater. He's kind of a swing man at this point, and he's making real money and was injured for the last couple seasons. But then they kicked in $8 million in cash on top of the whole thing. So there's... In my eyes, there's no way to look at this like from an objective value standpoint and see it as anything other than an overpay by the Mariners. You know, the kind of kind of one of the practices that I use when the numbers aren't lining up like this is I say, okay, is it possible that like the model was just wildly high on one guy and that's what's skewing all this? But when you go kind of down the list here, you you could say like okay, well, what if, you know, the model might be a little high on Gabriel Gonzalez because, you know, he's a prospect and we don't always have the most up-to-date prospect. Um, well, we had the most up-to-date prospect rankings as far as what's publicly available, but we don't have any of the privately available knowledge or sometimes a trade goes through and then a publication goes, oh yeah, I've been hearing good things about this guy or bad things about this guy. And they don't kind of publish that until after the fact of the trade. So there's always that uncertainty present. So you say, okay, yeah, what if we, you know, just Gabriel Gonzalez down a couple million to account for that? Maybe it was high on him. And then you look at Justin Topa and say, yeah, you know, he's older and has had some injuries. And, you know, last year was his first real solid season. And even then he didn't miss as many bats as you might have expected. So maybe seven's a little high for him. And let's let's tick him down a little bit. And then Darren Bowen is already, you know, lottery ticket territory, 0.4. You can't really do much there. And Anthony Desclafani, like, I guess you could take him down a little bit, too, if you really expect him to just be a zero. But even if you do all of that, even if you adjust every player down in the deal, you kick in the cash that's going in there, and it still looks like a pretty lopsided trade. It still looks like an overpay. And so that's kind of the the mental math that I that I do to say, like, okay, do I think this was a legitimate miss by the model, or 
do I think this was just an overpay of a trade? And that's where I land. I, I think this one is just an overpay. Yeah, I landed there too. And Jerry Depoto does what Jerry wants. And he coveted Polanco. It came out in reports that he's been trying to get Polanco for years. So when you covered a guy like that, you have a tendency to overpay. Um, we know the Yankees overpaid for Soto because they coveted him as well. And they had their reasons for that. Um, but looking at past Mariners trades from uh, in the Depoto era, um, one pattern that's starting to emerge is that he want he wants what he wants, and he's not afraid to overpay to get it. Um, or he'll do the opposite and dump a Eugenio Suarez for basically nothing for a guy who's DFA'd or whatever. So like like so in other words, he's mostly focused on field value and less so on surplus value. So he's mostly focused on focused on give me a good hitting second baseman. I've always wanted Polanco. There you go. And you know, so he's looking at it from that point of view. When you total up the sort of trades he's made this year, and we and this is probably an article I need to write. It's like what the like? Why are you dumping Suarez on the one hand and over and getting hardly anything back, and then overpaying for Polanco? Like the delta between Suarez and Polanco is maybe one war, maybe, <laughs> and you're like you've really lost the value game on just those two trades alone. So that's what's the bit of a head-scratcher here. Now, what I don't fault him for is for making the team better on a field value basis, because Blanco is probably a little bit more reliable than Suarez, given Suarez has been a little bit on the decline. Uh, having said that, Blanco does have injury uh, history. He missed a ton of time last year and a little bit more than the year before. So when I first heard about this trade, I thought, okay, I'll, it was, you know, the details were just emerging. Like, Blanco for... You know, it was um, it was Topa. I was like, okay, that's fair. And Discofani, I thought, oh, I bet they're taking Discofani's contract, which is a little underwater. And I was like, okay, that's fair. And maybe one more piece. But then you added Gonzalez, who's not only a fringe top 100, but he's legitimate on some other lists. And, and on the ones we sort of model on, he's, yeah, he's fringy 100. But I'm just making the point that other publications value him even higher. So that's not the issue. And the cash is cash. Eight million is eight million, right? So you got to fact. So maybe Desclafani's injury is worse than we thought. Maybe he is really not a starter who can handle the workload anymore. So maybe you bump him down a little bit. But to your point, even if you do all that, you're still overpaying. Topa has a couple more years of control. He was always a guy who had great stuff. He was just injured. Now he's healthy, and now he's off to the races. So you got to figure. I kept maybe seven is. But looking what at what comparable relievers have been getting. In the free agent market, mm, yeah, uh, I don't think that's necessarily unreasonable. So the only thing I can come back to is, are we low on Polanco? But then you look at the injury history and the second base issue and like the defense. It, yes, you could maybe make a case to bump him up a little bit more if you had, you know, full confidence that that he would be healthy for the next year or two. But that's a lot of ifs, right? So, yeah, again, anywhere you slice it, this is a big overpay. Yeah, I 100% agree with you that I think we need an article on this because just the money involved, and, and this is a good opportunity, I guess, to um, to shout out a recent article that we've had on the site um, from, from new B BTV contributor Sean Bergeron, Bergeron mm -hmm. um, and making sense of the Braves offseason and some of the financial shuffling that they've done and what they've kind of what they've come up with after all of these moves, you know, how much field value they've added at the cost of like what, what level of surplus value. Um, so recommend that one. I will include that in the show notes here. And I think something similar is probably in order here for the Mariners because 
early in the off season, it was all about they're giving up talent to shed money, right? They gave up Kelnick so they could get out from Marco Gonzalez and Evan White. And it's like, okay, they might be cash strapped. They're having their RSN issues. They needed to free up some money. And the same thing with the Eugenio Suarez deal, freeing up money and, and taking a lesser return. And so, okay, what's the next shoe to drop? And then it's this where, you know, yes, Jorge Polanco is a good player, but not only are they paying his full salary this year and next, but they're also covering all of the Desclafani money and they're giving up talented, a talented prospect and a quality reliever. Like comparing this with Eugenio Suarez, like, yeah, I think you're right to project Polanco to be a little bit better than Suarez and he's younger and he comes with a second year of team control. And those are all, you know, important distinctions to make. However, I think you can also project Justin Topa to be a whole lot better than Carlos Vargas who they got from the Mariners for Suarez, or not from the Mariners, from the from the D-backs for Suarez. Um, you can project Topa to be a lot better than Vargas, at least in 2024-2025. And Polanco is costing a lot more than than Suarez over these two years, especially when you factor in the $8 million that they're sending for Desclafani. And you lose a real quality prospect in Gonzalez that could have been flipped elsewhere to cover another need on the roster. Like... It's hard to really make sense of it. I mean, I might be missing something. That's that's certainly a possibility. It wouldn't be the first time. And I think if you look at the totality of the roster, it is in a better place now than it was on the first day of the offseason. I, I, I feel pretty comfortable saying that. And And they also might not be done yet. So maybe I need to wait to reserve judgment. But I think it's another case kind of like the Brewers where... Their early moves and their late moves just don't seem to agree with each other in a way that makes for like a cohesive off-season story. Yeah. So, hey, good news is um, we have a Mariners article coming up in the queue that's going to address all of these questions. And it's also written by Sean Bergeron, who wrote the Braves piece. So, and by the way, his, his, his tentative headline is, I love it, is Mariners trades. 54% of the time they work every time. <laughs> so, like... And he'll take the same sort of depth analysis that he did with the Braves piece. So look forward to that in the next week or two. Excellent. Can't wait to read it. Yep. All right. Um, I guess we, we should probably mention the twin side of this as well. Um, they were pretty heavy on the infield. Um, that That's kind of what led them to trade Luis Arias last offseason for Pablo Lopez. And then things only really improved from there since... Um, since Edward Julian had a really strong season and Brooks Lee is climbing through the minors and, you know, maybe someday we'll actually see what Austin Martin can do. Not really holding my breath on that one, but regardless, they had a pretty deep infield and, you know, if, if there was a spot on their roster to shit, I, I didn't even mention Royce Lewis and the breakout that he had and, and how much you can expect from him if he can stay on the field. So plenty of infield depth there and room to make a deal here polanco was the obvious guy to trade i mean he's been a fan favorite there he's been there since he was a teenager um and and he's kind of had his ups and downs but been a really solid contributor the whole way and so that's a guy they'll miss but there's so much other talent here um it was a clear spot for them to save a few bucks right after the deal they basically said yeah we're gonna spend this money we're not just saving it um they did turn around and sign Carlos Santana to play first base for them, which is like 
okay, sure, why not? That That's a warm body at first base. You kind of know exactly what you're going to get with Carlos Santana. Um, so certainly no real complaints there. And, and they probably have room to make another move or two here, um, potentially a starting pitcher to replace some of them that they've lost. So, I mean, it's hard not to just really like the deal for them, right? Like they, they added a really solid middle relief arm. They added a really solid prospect and they already have kind of a good crop of outfield prospects. And so he just kind of joins that group, Gonzalez does. And then Disclafani, it seems like they are going to give him a shot and, and see what he can do in kind of a swingman role. And, you know, it's it's no risk. They're not really paying him much of anything since the Mariners are covering most of that contract. So if it doesn't work out, if he just doesn't have his stuff coming back from injury, just cut him and move on. So I think it's it's really hard to look at this as anything other than like a really solid deal for the Twins that really improves their current and future outlooks. Yeah, boy, they it, on paper, it really looks like they took advantage of DePoto and his coveting of Polanco, right? Because they got a lot back that they can use, right? So, yeah, Topa slots in, uh, slots in nicely to their bullpen. Um, and whatever you get out of Descafani is a bonus because it's pretty much gravy, given the fact that, yes, they're, uh, the Mariners are paying most of the salary, so that's good. And you got Gabriel Gonzalez, who we talked about earlier, is, is a nice prospect. So, like, uh, yeah, and then they turned around, and um, even if you make a case that you're losing a bat, they turned around and used some of those savings on Carlos Santana at first, which bumps uh, Alex Kirilov to DH. Uh, he's had a lot of injuries, but he can hit, so that seems like a good role for them. I just want to mention, it's a vote of confidence for Eduard Julian. Um, I love saying Eduard Julian, and I think he's the only, I believe he's French-Canadian. I don't. I can't think of any other. Yep, that's right. MLB player who's French Canadian and has a name like Edouard Julien. I took French in high school and college. So I love saying Edouard Julien, right? Edouard Julien. So anyway, good for him. Very diverse roster in Minnesota between <laughs> Julien and and the German Max Kepler. And... Uh, Polish, <laughs> Polish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, last point I want to make here. Back to the Mariners side of this. We mentioned earlier with the Brewers, they're kind of carousel at first base, and, and the Mariners have had a revolving door of their own at second base the last couple off seasons. They've they've tried out Adam Frazier, and that didn't really go well, and then they tried out Colton Wong, and that was an unmitigated disaster. And I think of the three, I have the most faith in Jorge Polanco to actually be what they were looking for, and so maybe that kind of drives some of the some of the overpay, some of the infatuation yeah. there of we're sick of not getting any production out of this spot when we're just going to push the chips in and get the guy that we want because we know he's going to be good. Agreed. All right. Um, let's stick in the West here with the first significant trade between the two Bay Area teams in decades, I think it is. <laughs> uh, the Giants traded Ross Stripling to the A's. Um, Ross Stripling, we had underwater at negative 5.5 in surplus. Uh, the A's will also get cash from the Giants here, 3.25 million. And in exchange, the Giants receive outfielder Jonah Cox. He's a fringe prospect. Um, he was he was like a, a mid-round pick, and he's kind of a speed and defense and probably won't ever hit enough to be more than a fourth outfielder type. Um, but that's, that's kind of all you can really expect to get in this deal here. Um, Stripling's making about 12, 12 and a half million um yeah 12 and a half million this upcoming season and so that's why he's underwater he wasn't really that great in 2023 um and he is now into his mid-30s and he's always been kind of a swingman type so that's just a bit more than that type of player gets um 
I'm honestly not too surprised to see, you know, the cash not totally even it out. You know, the the fact that he's five and a half underwater and the Giants are only sending three million. Um, you know, at some point here, the A's have to do something to bump up their payroll <laughs> and just to, to avoid grievances from the league, from the, from the players union. Um, and they can't really get anyone to sign with them because they don't know where they're going to be playing in 2025 and beyond. So who's going to sign a multi-year deal to play for the traveling road show that is the undisclosed location athletics. Um, and so at that point it's, it's either one-year deals like they did with Alex Wood or, you know, making trades for guys like this and, and kind of beef up your payroll artificially that way. So, (laughs) I mean, not not to play full cynic on here. I think there's there's things to like about Ross Stripling. The A's very desperately needed to cover some innings. They really didn't have a whole lot of certainty beyond my man JP Sears. Um, and you know Ross Stripling, he actually just came out like a week or two ago and, and saying, yeah, I'm throwing the new death ball. You know the new like choked curveball, gyro curve, whatever you want to call it. Um, that has been kind of gaining traction since Jordan Montgomery really dominated with it in the playoffs. And so maybe that's something, maybe it's not either way. This is, I don't want to say a warm body, but kind of a warm body <laughs> for the A's to add to their pitching staff. And it frees up a little bit more cash for the giants and makes you wonder, okay, is there another shoe that's going to drop over there? So, okay. A couple of points here. Number one, the A's are getting, um, uh, what am I blanking on? They're getting um, revenue sharing. It's not revenue. Yeah, revenue sharing. Thank you. So the um, gentleman's agreement is if we're getting revenue sharing money, we need to spend that on the team. In fact, it's not just a gentleman's agreement. I think it's stipulated somewhere that you need to do that. So the A's have to spend money on somebody, right? So they can spend it on Stripling via taking on most of his salary. They can spend it on Alex Wood. Last year, they spent it horribly on Ledmus Diaz. And then Trevor May, who pitched, eh, okay, and then retired. Um, but, you know, they got to spend it on somebody, right? So, and sure, why not the rotation? Um, so, because they've got, uh, as you point out, not a whole lot of certainty there. So, okay, so that makes sense. Uh, interesting side note, seems like Wood and Stripling have their own sort of partnership going on. They were in San Francisco before that, I believe, for LA for a bit. So, anyway, um, they got that going on. And then... Um, the fact that the Giants and A's never make trades, it was an interesting thing I heard from, I think it was David Forrest, who said, hey, yeah, I mean, there's nobody I know better than Farhan Zaidi were there, so because they used to work together. So, you know, I think maybe that has thawed quite a bit because of that relationship. Um, so you're probably going to, like, and also because of the fact that the A's clearly are moving somewhere, <laughs> so we don't know where, probably somewhere, but who knows. And so, like, that's kind of a the fact that they're sort of Bay Area rivals. That seems like it's over. So I don't think there's any reason not to trade with each other. Um, other than that, I don't have a whole lot to say about this trade, other than it's a warm body. Yeah, I mean, I I will say that I certainly prefer the moves that they've made this off season of getting Wood and Stripling over, like you said, the Aledmus Diaz disaster, and then Jace Peterson also for some reason, like yeah. Those at the time didn't seem like they made all that much sense to give both of those guys two-year deals, but maybe that's what you had to do to get them to come. Uh, it seems like pitching is a much safer route to go, you know, especially for this last year in the in the Coliseum where it's so pitcher-friendly. Like, it 
it doesn't seem like it's too hard to convince a guy to sign for a year to come pitch in the Coliseum and, and probably get traded halfway through the season if he's any good. So that seems like an easier sell, and I think that's the better path for them to go as they try to find somewhere to spend their money and also find a way to maybe generate some some players that they can trade for prospects down the line. Yeah, I mean, the only other point I would want to raise is what's going on with the Giants shedding these pitchers because they'd already gotten rid of Desclafani. Uh, they did pick up <clears throat> Robbie Ray, but he's not going to be ready until somewhere around the second half of the season. So when you look at the Giants rotation, where they they got Webb, Harrison, who's still technically a prospect, uh, live arm, totally. They're trying to turn Jordan Hicks. They signed him, who's uh, he's been a reliever all his life, and, and now suddenly is being turned into a starter, which is a big question mark. And then you got two unproven guys, mostly in Keaton Wynn, Tristan Beck, according to Ross Resource. That's their rotation. So basically you have Webb and Pray for Rain right now. So like, so why did they trade Stripling other than to clear salary? So you got to figure they've got some money to spend. They're gotta, they have to have another move in them. And it's probably signing a pitcher from the free agent market because they've got that money. But you got to wonder uh, what the plan is there with the Giants. I will say every time I read an article about the Giants, I am informed of three new pitching prospects I've never heard of in my life. <laughs> and I can't tell if they're actual like solid pitching prospects that I should have on my radar or if it's just kind of like, oh, local media like overhyping kind of a, a back end arm kind mm -hmm. of a thing. But like Kaiwei Tang and Mason Black and Carson Seymour and Carson Weisenhunt and Hayden Birdsong, like these are fake names, right? These people are made up. <laughs> That's not even getting into Keaton Wynn and Tristan Beck. Like these are these are MLB the show auto-generated names where they <laughs> copy paste the first name of one player and the last name of another player and, and there you go. Like that's all that is. <laughs> yeah. I think you're right. I mean, look, I'm not an expert on the Giants pitching farm. We're just we you know, we 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 let the experts be the experts, but um yeah, it seems like they're just kind of cycling through a bunch of sort of back-end guys and hoping for the best, and maybe one of them pops. Um, Harrison is always a top prospect, so you figure he's got a future. But other than that, yeah, a whole bunch of question marks. Yeah. I'm going to take this opportunity for a quick tangent. Um, John, do you or your children play MLB The Show? Um, my children do. Um, Are once you... in a while, they'll rope me into it, and I'll play a little bit, but they do the majority of it. Are you aware of the kind of MLB The Show cover man saga that's been going on the last handful of years? Uh, vaguely, yes. And I know who the cover is this year. That, yeah, that so, so it I wouldn't go as far as calling it like the cover boy curse or anything like that, but there's a pretty consistent track record of the guy who goes on the cover has a pretty disappointing season. Uh, you know, they had Fernando Tatis on the cover and he had his whole injury and suspension. Last year's cover was Jazz Chisholm and he was injured and not all that great this year. And that just makes it quite surprising to me that Vlad Guerrero Jr. is on the cover this year <laughs> after we talked about him in the past of, is he headed toward potential DFA territory? And then his arbitration hearing comes this week and he won. So he gets even more money. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. that only spikes up his 2024, 2025 arbitration number even higher. So right. I see us on a collision course with Vlad Jr. And the MLB The Show cover news only solidifies that that theory. But Josh, he's in the best shape of his life. Do you see the pictures? He's been working out. Oh, oh, surely, surely. <laughs> <laughs> Poor I, Vlad. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't mean this as hate on him at all. I mean, I, I want him to have another monster season, but oh boy, am I scared. <laughs>
<laughs> that's all I'll, I'll say there. Yeah, it's a good point. The curse of the show. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's go to the Dodgers next. Uh, so first they traded Caleb Ferguson to the Yankees. We had Ferguson, left-handed reliever, at $6.4 million in surplus. In exchange, they get left-handed reliever Matt Gage at 0.0 and right-handed pitching prospect Christian Zazueta Jr., uh, who was not in the system. So comes through as an overpay by the Dodgers because they're giving up what we saw as you know a fairly reliable left-handed relief arm for kind of nothing for for a fringe prospect and like a 40-man depth lefty reliever type um this wouldn't be the first time that they've made a move that's like kind of puzzling on paper and if it works out it wouldn't be the first time that that move had made people look stupid um a couple months later so very possible that there's something here also possible that it's just a roster crunch and we've been seeing this all off season in los angeles where they have so much talent on their 40-man now, and a lot of it can't really go anywhere. And when that starts to happen, you kind of got to cut some losses in some areas. We saw it with the Michael Bush trade earlier this offseason. We saw it with the Jorbit Vivas and Victor Gonzalez trade. Both of those trades, they lost they lost value by our, by our model, and, and pretty significantly. And that's because... You know, they needed to make roster space for one of these big free agents they keep signing, and there is a cost to that. You, you, you have to cut someone, and you either choose, okay, I'll cut him, and somebody picks him up, and I lose him for nothing. Or I trade him, maybe get less than full value, but at least I'm getting something. Yep. I think that's what's going on. I think they've made the calculated risk that they're trying to build a super team, and, you know, they willingly accept that there are costs involved, not just with you know, signing the big free agent names and the cost involved there on on paper with money, but also bumping the roster slots here and on paper losing some sort of surplus value on a guy like Ferguson, who by all accounts is a very reliable lefty. Like I said, the Yankee fans that I've seen are thrilled to have him. And like we gave up what? They gave up Matt Gage, who was DFA'd a couple times and basically picked up on the waiver wire and then suddenly turned him into Ferguson. And then a, a, a Maybe the young prospect who's not in our system yet has something, but he's, it's too early to tell. I think he's a teenager, so that's just a lottery ticket. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, the consensus is, yes, the Yankees have been taking advantage of the Dodgers in terms of, hey, call us if you need to get rid of somebody. We'll, you know, we'll probably take them, and that's what they did. So, and, you know, because they don't have, the Dodgers don't have leverage at that moment when they know they need to clear a roster spot. So, and they've already kind of cut the fat. So now they're just like cutting into meat. That's, that's what that was. Yeah. If anything, my takeaway here is that this reaffirms my belief that the Dodgers really see something in Gus Varland and Ricky Venasco. Because those two have managed Mm, to hang on on the 40 man throughout all of this while they've traded, you know, significantly larger names and more valuable players in Vivas, Bush, and Ferguson. And, you know, counterpoint there is, oh, well, they traded those guys because they could actually get something back for them. They wouldn't really get much back if they traded a Varland or a Vanasco. But still, I think think a lot of folks would look at this roster and just say, like, those are the obvious guys to cut. You could maybe even get them through waivers and keep them. But the fact that they haven't tells me they might see something there and maybe – those are the next couple names to watch as far as, you know, the, the Evan Marshalls of the world, the, the next um, Dodgers breakout reliever. I mean, yeah, you could look at it from a, to your counterpoint, you know, I, I think uh, Ferguson will have to look up to see him one more year of control or two. Like he's, 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 his, his control is waning. And so maybe they're, they're so confident of their pitching development that 
they see some talent in a guy like you know Van, uh, Ricky Vanasco and say, okay, we can work with that. And he's a more, he has more years of control. Obviously, if it works out, then they've got a longer-term asset. So maybe it's just a short-term versus long-term play. Yeah, certainly. And then uh, we should probably mention a couple of the corresponding moves here for the Dodgers. They have unsurprisingly brought back Clayton Kershaw. It's a two-year deal, tons of incentives. The second year is a player option. Um, he's going to be missing most of this season as he comes back from off-season shoulder surgery. And so this is really just, hey, we're bringing him back into the fold. And it's kind of entirely on his terms, right? Like once once he's healthy, he pitches as well as he can, and he can come back if he wants to. And they've kind of had this approach with him for the last handful of years where they kind of take it year to year and see how his body's holding up, see if he even wants to keep pitching anymore, see if he wants to, you know, finish out his career in Texas, his hometown. Um, and it just seems like a very, a very uh, symbiotic, is that the word? <laughs> um, just a very healthy relationship between team and player here where they each know what the other is going for and they're both on the same page. And yeah, th this is a pretty good deal for him and a pretty good deal for the team because if he does come back and, and is pitching like he was even in 2023 even you know post peak kershaw is still a very valuable pitcher to have yeah and so a couple of points on that uh in addition to the ones you made uh, one is he's not going to come back until you know at earliest after the all-star break so you can envision like this is your postseason guy right he's going to come back maybe in august let's say and ramp up a little bit in you know August September, and then you got him in October where he's good to go, and you only paid five million in a base salary for that. Now there are incentives, so maybe he you know makes ten starts, uh, in, in, at which I can't remember what the the details are, but at a certain point, if he makes certain, more, he'll get more money based on the number of starts he makes, and so that's sort of a wash in terms of value. Like okay, we'll pay him. You give us more we'll pay you more. You give us more, we'll pay you more. So the way we model that is basically on the base salary of five and five, five this year, five next year as a base. And there's a little bit of surplus in that, but that surplus will likely go away if he, if he ramps up and, and, you know, gets more innings and more starts. Um, but it's kind of a wash because you can, I just cannot in my mind ever imagine at this point, the Dodgers trading Gershaw in any scenario because they really want him for the postseason. They obviously love each other. So it is what it is. So you'd have to prime away. So there's probably some surplus value anyway. So there you go. But it's interesting also that Kershaw at this point in his career acknowledged his age and his sort of health issues and said, okay, just give me 5 million and I'm fine. If I pitch more than that, okay, great. I'll get more. Uh, but like his base has really come down in terms of his, his salary, so I thought that was interesting too. Right, it's like a smaller scale of the Buxton deal, mm -hmm. where yeah. you're really going to get paid if you perform, and that's kind of kind of the basis of it. Because you're right, it's it's a ten million dollar guarantee for those two years, five in each year, and it can max out at twelve and a half million in 2024 and twenty five million in 2025. Um, so if, if he somehow hits the ground running and is back to himself and makes 30 starts next year, it's suddenly a two year, 37 and a half million deal. And you're, you're right that, you know, that obviously eats away at the surplus, but on the flip side, his field value would greatly increase if he is back and healthy. And this is, this is such a long shot. I'm not saying that there's any, any likelihood whatsoever that Kershaw makes 30 starts next year. Um, but the, the two will kind of scale together and keep this right around fair value, right? Because if he's if he's pitching more, yeah, then right. that means that his field value is going up and, and you know, you're kind of shaking off some of the injury risk as you go. Yep. 
They're just um, going in lockstep with each other. Definitely. Yep. Yep. And then the other move the Dodgers made was they brought back Ryan Brazier. It's a two-year, $9 million deal uh, with, with some incentives in there as well that could bring it up to $13 million. Uh, he was picked up partway through last season from the Red Sox. Uh, he was really a mess for the Red Sox, and then he joins the Dodgers, and he's untouchable because that's how they work. <laughs> um he he did have some luck involved there. He had a very low BABIP, and and you know you don't necessarily expect him to quite maintain his 0.70 ERA for the Dodgers. But yeah, I think he added a cutter. Um, and you know there's there's some some real changes that happen when a, when a guy joins the Dodgers and and suddenly starts performing like this. It's it's usually not entirely smoke and mirrors. And the fact that they're recommitting to him just kind of reinforces that that they expect him to be a quality you know, middle relief arm for them. Yeah, so they basically swapped Ferguson for Brazier, which is interesting. So that tells me they had more confidence in Brazier. I mean, not to say that they had less confidence. And so, I mean, I guess so. I mean, not to say that Ferguson suddenly, you know, they know something and nobody else does and he's going to turn bad. But it's interesting that they put more emphasis on signing Brazier and parting with Ferguson was worth the risk of signing Brazier, which that's that's what's interesting to me. Um, from a value and perspective, think... we were pretty close to that. I think two years of Brazier, we had at 8.2, and he signed for nine. So I think that one was good. Um, Dodgers have no problem, you know, rounding up. So so that worked. And I think the trade-off there is worth noting because the Dodgers are now kind of thin on the left side of their bullpen. It's Alex Vesia, who's okay, and Ryan Yarbrough, who's eh. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a, a swingman. <laughs> yeah. And so Ferguson was really their best lefty. And, you know, Victor Gonzalez was also kind of solid, and they also traded him. And so, yeah, they're they're pretty thin in that department now, and it's not exactly a spot that at this point in the offseason that's easy to fill unless you're making a trade. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's worth mentioning. I'm just, I'm just scrolling through their list, uh, their org list here. And obviously they brought back Matt Gage, so maybe he's kind of next man up there, but I don't know if he's really a guy that you're getting excited about then again it's the dodgers maybe there is something that they're excited about there um they have good old tj mcfarland on a non-roster invite contract as well as steven gonsalves um so yeah that's their left-handed depth right now it's not it's not even like they have you know one of those top pitching prospects that might make their way into the bullpen at some point i guess maybe maddox bruns he's projected to start the year at double a but that's kind of it you know the rest of that young crop that they have waiting in the wings are all righties um and maybe they just don't care that much you know a guy like evan phillips can get righties and lefties out so maybe it's not as big of a deal yeah no that's a great point though um and they do seem to have an overabundance of those young sort of depth you know projected starters even after trading um pepio they still have a bunch of them they got grove and stone and knack and hurt um and no the they all have one they all have one syllable names exactly. that are very easy to confuse <laughs> with each other i'm not going to keep any of these guys straight you same 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 i always confuse grove and stone for some reason um but um uh you must be the long o but um yeah i mean the dodgers always plan ahead right they know that it takes you know at least seven starters to get through a season they've got bueller also coming back at some point um so even after they lose you know may and gonsolin and frasso to injuries for a long time They've still got these depth arms because you know they know that they're going to tap their shoulder and 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 they tap on tap on them and on the shoulder and say yeah we need you, so you know and Yamamoto's never pitched a an inning in MLB. Um, everyone assumes he's going to be great, but we don't really know yet. 
Uh, Glasnow's had health issues. Uh, Miller is still like developing and looks like great. Like it'd be a solid sort of number three starter for them. But, you know, we don't know yet for sure because um, now he'll be tested by the league. Paxton is Paxton made a glass, you know, health issues there. And Sheehan, again, a rookie-ish guy who still needs to kind of prove himself in the league. So like there's a bunch of question marks there, which is why they have depth. Um, so even the, even, so what I'm saying is, even the you know the bullpen has issues with only one proven lefty and it's okay one at that but even the rotation is like yeah you could squint and say it needs a little a little more certainty in it yeah they've got enough quantity there and it's and it's not just hey let's throw you know 14 different wade Miley's at the wall and see what sticks mm-hmm. like they they have enough quantity with upside in both spots but it might take some shuffling to get to the best guys and then if the yeah. best guys get hurt then they have to rely on some of the others so you're right they they have really impressive depth in both areas it's just uncertain as we stand here on on february 11th of who's going to be picking up those spots and what exactly that's going to look like by the summer or by october so that's that's why they play the games john yeah you're right josh Hey, can I call an audible here and just squeeze in one point since we're talking about starting pitchers? Yep. Um, you might have seen uh, on Twitter the video of Shane Bieber uh, increasing his velocity after working at driveline. Um, now, I take that with a huge grain of salt because, number one, he's increasing his velocity from basically 92 to 93. And apparently he threw you know more at 93 than he did last season. Uh, so it's not much of an increase. And number number two... He still kind of is who he is. He's not throwing 99 or anything. So, um, But also, uh, a lot of people made the point that, okay, it's one thing to do it in a lab where everything's controlled. A whole other thing to do it on the field, especially when you're starting and you have to conserve energy and all that. So, like, we'll see. The only takeaway I got from that is his big question mark is health. His He missed a third of the season with elbow inflammation. And that is the big red flag. The team, he's already going to be making $13 million plus this year in salary. So we had him at 5.6 surplus. Again, calculating like we talked about earlier with, with Burns. You know, that means if you were on the free, if you, if you were a free agent, would you sign him to a one-year deal knowing he could get hurt anytime, knowing that that's potentially a, you know, a ticking time bomb? So that's why we had him at like 5.6, which rounds up to about 18, 19 in field value. In other words, if you sign him for a one-year deal, that's what you'd pay. In this market, that seemed fair. In I hate to do this, but I had to admit there was a little something to the fact that he's been at driveline and has not had any injury issues. That tends to, so I bumped him up a little bit, and I know that's putting my finger on the uh, on the scale a little bit. But I thought, okay, if he's healthy, if he's showing signs of health, we can improve it a little bit. So he's up to seven point seven. Essentially, he'd get like a twenty million dollar deal if you're a free agent. So just wanted to throw that out there. I think it was worth it from that standpoint. Just like maybe reducing just a little bit of the health risk. I think that's fair. And I think that's kind of all we can do given the limitations that we have. And we obviously don't have insight into his medicals from either during the season or right now. We're kind of just only have to go on the publicly available information. And if one of those data points is, Hey, he's looking good at driveline and throwing a little harder then. I think it's it's worth factoring the data saying. point in. Exactly. Um, I think the counterpoint there is, and it's what you were saying, like that it's such a different environment to be to be pitching in, in the lab. Like a big factor both for velocity and for injury risk is recovery time, right? 
And in a game, especially with the pitch clock, you have to turn around and throw another pitch in like 20 seconds. And you don't get to, you know, rest your arm for five minutes like you might get to do in a lap. Again, not saying that that's, that that's necessarily what was going on at driveline, that, you know, he chucked 193 with everything he had in him and then took a half hour lunch break and came back and chucked another one. Um, but that is something that, that needs to be considered. And then, you know, you have the higher adrenaline in games versus in a lab. So maybe that pushes it the other way. And, and you could go back and forth on this forever. Obviously. But I think, yeah. I think at the end of the day, I agree with your conclusion there that, you know, this isn't, this isn't obviously going to eradicate the injury risk. Like there's still legitimate concerns there. And even aside from the injury risk, there were legitimate performance concerns of, Hey, where'd the strikeouts go? Right. Um, so I, I still don't feel comfortable saying like, yep, he's an ace again, Cy Young winner. He's up where Corbin Burns is 30 million surplus. Let's go. Like, I think, I think anybody would agree that he would return less in a trade than Corbin Burns did. And it's just a matter of how much. And I think, I think we're in the right territory with, with it right now. And obviously could be proven wrong, or maybe we never find out because he never gets traded. Yeah. I mean, look, all we have to go on is public information, right? So if public information, there's a new data point to your point, you know, that that changes things a little, then we change it a little. And that's all we're saying. We don't have access to his medicals. We have no inside information whatsoever. We're just being reasonable and saying, well, this is the public information. He missed a third of the year last year with elbow information. So, you know, you model it out and you draw the conclusion that he's at risk for missing, you know, a similar time this coming year. Um, if, if we have a new data point that says, okay, he's managed to stay healthy while throwing a little bit better, it's a little something. So we just changed it a little based on that new public information. So, but yeah, I share the same concerns otherwise. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's go, we can stay in the NL or AL central, I guess. And let's talk about the weird moves the White Sox have made. Um, Let's start with the good. The White Sox traded right-handed pitcher Gregory Santos at $7.8 million in surplus to the Mariners in exchange for outfielder Zach Deloach, right-handed pitcher Perlander Baroa, uh, Deloach at 4.5, Baroa at 3.3, and a comp B pick at 2.0. So this one goes through as a minor overpay by Seattle. Um, and honestly, just good deal here for the White Sox. They picked up Gregory Santos uh, near the end of, uh, I think it was like winter 2022, um, and just like a, a total minor waiver wire type trade from the Giants and turned him into a pretty quality reliever. And now they're flipping him for an interesting enough outfield prospect, an interesting enough pitching prospect and a second round draft pick. So honestly, good for them. This is what you're supposed to do as a rebuilding organization is you're supposed to, you know, find find the diamond in the rough reliever pump up his value and then trade him for talent. Is it is it possible that none of Baroa Deloach or this draft pick turned into anything? Sure, but it's just as likely that Santos would have never done anything truly valuable for the for a contending White Sox team in his career. So this is the move that you're supposed to make. And and on the flip side of it for the Mariners, these were kind of some supplementary pieces for them. Like they they have a handful of solid outfield prospects even after trading Gabriel Gonzalez. Um, Lazaro, Lazaro Montez is a big name for them. And then there's a couple others in the system as well. Um, and obviously Julio at the big league level. So they're not going to lose sleep over trading Deloach here and then 
Baroa's kind of I, I think he's been traded a couple times as well From he's the Giants, yeah. a, then, a bit more of yeah. a fringy pitching prospect anyway so it's not not a huge hit to their system and Santos you know maybe he helps replace Justin Topa and and maybe you see a better outlook for him if you're the Mariners since he is so much younger and and doesn't quite have the injury history that Topa did so I think there's I, I think this is a perfectly fine deal on both sides I don't mean to, to say that the Mariners got fleeced but I think when you look at the process as a whole, the White Sox did really, really well here. Yeah, it's smart. Yeah, and I, I, I saw this as as the Mariners replacing Topa as well with Santos, who is coming off a really good year and has a lot. Uh, I think he has five years of control ahead of him. So so good for them. I think it's a smart deal from that standpoint. They didn't give up anything they're going to miss because Barroa is essentially a younger version of Santos. And so then there were some Mariners fans who were like, well, Barroa's got great stuff. Why do we need to trade him for Santos? Why not just keep Barroa? And I think that's a valid point. You could have done that. I think the only difference is you have a little bit more certainty with Santos, who has already done it for a year, as opposed to Barilla, who could do it. And so that's really the only thing you know, separating them. And so from the White Sox point of view, it makes perfect sense. You trade this, you know, sell high on the guy who's already done it for a year for a guy, a younger version of him who has the potential to do it, you know, and, it, you know, and then pick, get up two more pieces, uh, get two more pieces back in the deal and then some so to make it even so i think it makes perfect sense and obviously our model agrees and i also just full-heartedly tra- uh, trust the mariners relief um evaluation yeah right with, with their track record of developing totally. these relievers like if, if they truly believe that santos is going to be better than topa going forward then sure i believe them i'll, I'll wait and see um mm-hmm. Trying to move quick here because I'm just now realizing how many tabs I still have open and how, how close we are okay. to our 90-minute mark. Um, the flip side of this, the White Sox, a few minutes later, uh, traded for Dominic Fletcher from the Diamondbacks, had him at $1.9 million in surplus, and in exchange, they sent out right-handed pitching prospect Christian Mena at 5.7. So this one's lopsided in the other direction. Uh, still goes through, considered a minor overpay by the White Sox. And this one's kind of odd. Mena had a little bit of helium, you know, not certainly not a superstar prospect by any means. And and you take a look at his Fangraphs page. Uh, he hasn't had the prettiest ERAs going through the system, but I, I think we should all know better by now than to just evaluate a prospect based off of their minor league ERA. Um, and, and there's there's things to like here. And he's only 20, and he's already made it up to AAA, and he's got good strikeout stuff, and you know, he's he's a quality pitching prospect. I think that's that's what he is at the end of the day. And in exchange, they picked up Dominic Fletcher, who's... I like Dominic Fletcher, but he's 26. He was never really a prospect. He's kind of a little guy. He doesn't have a whole lot of power in there. Um, you know, he just kind of screams fourth outfielder in a lot of ways. And again, I, I like the guy, but that's just what he looks like. And then there was a confusing report that came out just today from Bob Nightingale of USA Today. And so, you know, you can maybe question the validity of it if you want to. Um, But according to to Nightingale, the White Sox could have chosen between either Fletcher or Jake McCarthy of the Diamondbacks. And McCarthy is in like the 13 million range in in surplus value. Um, So that one should have been a no-brainer in the other direction. Yeah, we have him at 13.8. And that's because he was a real prospect and played very well down the stretch in 2022. And, and 2023 wasn't quite as good for him at the big league level, but he still crushed it in the minors. And he has like he has more carrying tools. He's really fast, um, a bit better 
of a, a complete hitter you know you like the build better for him he's he's larger and it looks like he might actually grow into a little bit of power where you wouldn't really say that with fletcher and so yeah i at the end of the day it's, it's just a really weird trade to me you know i'm not gonna nitpick it too much because it is just kind of a a mid-range pitch, pitching prospect for you know a fringe outfielder and if they really like fletcher then not a big deal i guess but on paper it's a loss for them and knowing what they could have had instead it's even worse yeah so it kind of touches on the difference in value is something is is one of the sort of methodologies that our model is um mccarthy is more proven at the major league level right he's he's had some experience and he's had some successes at the major league level which drives up his value Typically, you see that sort of, you know, the more success you have at the major league level, the more field value you're going to have, the more it reduces the probability of bust if you're a prospect or a young player, right? So McCarthy has more certainty because he's done it. So therefore, he's less of a bust risk. Fletcher has not really done it yet. He had a small sample size in 23. Um, so there's still kind of a high bust risk with him. That could be a mirage. Keep in mind, he's the brother of David Fletcher, who had, you know, a good year or two with the Angels, but then never had any power, and then, you know, um, and was traded to the Braves, blah, blah, blah. Now he's like a fringy utility guy with no power. So uh, for whatever that's worth, I know they're different people, but they have the similar bloodlines. Anyway, so, um, yeah. <laughs> so I would be surprised at that. So McCarthy has more trade value because he's done it before, and he still has five years of control. The only thing I can figure is... Fletcher, um, because he basically just had the short, small sample size, he still has six years of control. And so maybe the timeline of the White Sox, maybe the what Chris Getz is thinking is, okay, well, you know, we're, it's going to be a while while we rebuild. We're not going to be competitive this year or next year. So give me a guy with six years of control versus a guy with five years of control. That's all I can figure. Who knows if, if you know, sometimes a lot of reporters, in this case Nightingale, um, you know, don't, know the full story and it's not their fault necessarily it's that their sources don't tell them a lot like maybe they if they would have taken mccarthy then maybe they would have had to kick in something else from the white Sox side to even it out a little bit more i suspect that's typically the case but you know reports are reports and that's what they run they run with what they're told quite often um so anyway i'm not going to make too much about that um but yeah given the a lot of white Sox fans seem to like mana so they were surprised that they traded him I mean, he's not that, given the fact that we had him at like 5.7. He's not like a superstar prospect. There's a lot of uncertainty with pitching prospects, obviously, as well. Um, so it's not going to kill the bank or anything. But I guess the White Sox needed a little bit more on the outfield side, the position player front, and they see a little potential with Fletcher. So, okay. It's not that big a deal. It's not that big an overpay. So, fine. Yeah. And on the whole, I'll give the White Sox credit for this offseason. I think they've done a good job of doing what a rebuilding team should do without, you know, they haven't t t torn it all the way down to the studs, right? They still have Andrew Vaughn and Luis Robert and Eloy Jimenez and, and the big one, Dylan Cease. But they've done a good job at getting a bunch of dart throws in, yeah. right? Of taking chances on guys who might turn into something, giving them some big league playing time, seeing what happens, and then they either have a cornerstone or a trade chip if things do work out and i think the best example of that was early on with the aaron bummer deal where they mm -hmm. took all of <laughs> all of the brave scraps and basically guaranteed roster spots for all of them um you know mike soroka is penciled in as their number four starter on roster resource like that's what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to take shots on guys like him 
on, I guess, a Dominic Fletcher type if you like him. On, you know, Nicky Lopez, somebody might need a utility infielder at the deadline, and he's shown some talent levels in the past. And, and a Davey Garcia and Tuki Toussaint in the bullpen. Like, looking up and down this roster, yes, it's a bad roster. <laughs> they're, they're probably going to finish last in that division. But they're doing a lot of things right from, you know, how you maximize value as a rebuilding team. So kudos to them for that. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I know when Farhan Zaidi first started on the Giants, he was constantly on the waiver wire trying to, you know, and he made some good trades. And we have an article on that coming too. But he did pick up Tyro Estrada and uh, Lamont Wade. You know, he got Shremsky off the waiver wire. So, like, it's a little bit of that, right? Like, you say, all right, well, this cast a wide net, go fishing, and see who pops up. So, I, yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Let's stick in the central, um, a much larger deal. It's the Kansas City Royals signing Bobby Witt Jr. to an 11-year extension. Uh, it's 11 years, $288.7 million deal. And there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of sevens mixed into this deal. That's his jersey number. And mm-hmm. so all the different incentives and, and numbers, the signing bonus is $7.777777 million. Um, I digress. Uh, so huge extension. Um, also kind of a complicated deal. There's multiple opt-outs in it for wit there's also multiple club options tacked on at the end so um the the theoretical max value is 377 million dollars over 14 years pretty unlikely that those get exercised they're pretty lofty um club options for his you know mid to late 30s so um and that's only happening if wit doesn't opt out starting in 2030 when he's earning 35 million dollars a year so there we see a lot of these uh, i think uh i think the julio rodriguez deal was kind of the precedent for some of these like they're they're fully guaranteed contracts but they're kind of conditional and there's (laughs) i like i like the term like choose your own adventure type contracts (laughs) like you you get to go go whichever path you Mm -hmm. want yeah um, but at the end of the day, the true quote-unquote guarantee is that 11-year, $288.7 because if, if that's what Witt wants, that's what he gets. Um, with that, huge win for the Royals, locking up a franchise cornerstone, huge win for Bobby Witt Jr., huge win for Royals fans, and a huge win for our model as well. It's, our model expected an 11-year extension for wit to be 287.9 million and that is like right on the money that is such a rounding error <laughs> and there's like as i mentioned there's there's other factors that go into it with some of the opt-outs and the club options and all of that like you could argue that you know monetary value alone it's 288.7 but given some of the leverage that wit has you could you could maybe argue that it has more value to the player to some degree and, and he has a no trade clause and, and things like that you could also make the argument the other way that you know the marketing value gives additional value to the royals that isn't covered in that 288.7 so there's obviously a lot else that goes into us but at the end of the day the model was right on the money with, with the actual money figure and i guess one more important important clarification on this is in some of the tweets this offseason as we've been using our free agent extent or our free agent value timelines and extension value timelines and, and future trade value timelines to kind of um, test what happened in reality against what the model said. Um, for all the free agent deals, it, it's you know it's pretty consistently worded. It's uh, 
you know, our model expected player X to be worth $50 million in field value over the next four years. They got $47 million, so it was a good deal or whatever. Um, this isn't quite that exact scenario because we're not saying that the model has wits field value at 287.9 million. That's not quite it. It actually has its field value higher over those 11 years. The difference is with Witt still in his pre-arbitration years and then going into his arbitration years, he was already guaranteed to not be making, you know, full full value. He was guaranteed to have surplus during those years. He wasn't going to be making his full field value like a free agent would be expected to. You know, as a free agent, if you're going to be worth $15 million a year, you can say, hey, pay me $15 million a year and, and you'll probably get it. But as a pre-arb and arbitration player, you might be worth $40, $50 million a year in field value. And you're just not going to get paid that because of the financial structure. So the 11-year estimate from the model, from the you know extension value tool, has that pre-arbitration and arbitration you know limitation on salary built in. So his true field value is much higher than this 288.7 number or the 287.9 number. Uh, but once we factor that in, that's what the model expected him to to earn on this 11-year extension, and it was right there. Yeah, exactly. So keep in mind, so, you know, we make these projections um, before, you know, any sort of deal happens. And so when the actual details of the deal emerge, like is it backloaded, are there opt-outs, whatever, like we haven't factored that in. We have a very sort of simple baseline sort of AAV, like what would he get is what we're answering. And the answer was he would get 287.9 and he get 288. So that was a really good uh, win for them all. Um, yeah, a lot of people don't know that we do this as an offering in our, our GM level subscription tier. Um, and as more of these types of contracts may start to happen as we get into spring training, it's typically the time of year where they do, I would encourage you to check that out. So um, right now we're featuring Adley Rutschman, uh, just so you can get a sense of what he might bring. Now, another thing to, to mention is that the way it works is you can toggle between year scenarios. So if you think he's going to get an eight-year deal, you can see what that looks like. If you think he's going to get a six-year deal or a 10-year, whatever, you can you can toggle and see how the values change, which is kind of fun. I don't know. It's a good, you know, first win right out of the gate for this. This this is a new feature of ours. So we're always looking to test it. And so the more of these come online, the more we'll say, ah, we were close or we were off or whatever. So it's good to have the first one be so close. Um, so that's first point. Second point, is, as you were mentioning, Josh, is there is surplus value baked in already because of the leverage that the team has, given where Wit is because he had four years of control with a lot of surplus value baked in. So it's in their interest to keep some of that surplus value as kind of a safety net, as a margin, as good business, you know. So, so they're gonna. So we start from that premise. Now, what you see on the site now that the contract is in place, you'll start to see it. Um, what is the trade value sort of number? Not that they would ever trade wit at this point, but just for hypothetical reasons, you know, we say you'll see that there's a, you know um, a good surplus amount there because that was baked into the deal. So. Um, so, and then one final point, um, you mentioned, Josh, it's unlikely that he would, you know, um, that some of the later sort of versions of it where I think he's, it's backloaded to the point where he's be, he'd be making $35 million a year in, um, you know, in, or I can't remember what the numbers are, but, you know, it's unlikely that the, the, um, the numbers that he would get on the back end are, are realistic. So, the way we work it in our trade value, what's the most realistic scenario according to our model, and and we'll go from there. 
Right. So, so the back end of that deal is three club options at 33 and then 28 and 28. And basically what you're saying is if we're not projecting him in 2035 to be worth $33 million in field value, yeah. then right. the option's not going to be picked up. Exactly. And kind of the one thing I want to add along those lines is on such a long-term deal, and you see this with basically every player in the model, they're going to fluctuate they're going to fluctuate quite a bit <laughs> as we make updates. And that's kind of unavoidable. You know, if, if wit comes out of the gate in 2024 and his first two, three months of the season, he's just killing it. He's looking like the MVP, then his field value is going to spike and it's going to extrapolate over the 11 years of this deal and make it look even better. If he comes out struggling, it's going to be the other way. And you kind of got to wait until the full picture at the end of the season for these like real long-term contracts. Cause otherwise it just, it'll, it'll be bouncing up and down. And, and the, the, the plus side with, with these longer term deals is like you said, they're almost never going to get traded. You know, there was the Giancarlo Stanton deal and that's kind of it as far as like these mega contract multi-year deals, guys getting traded. So not necessarily a concern that any given point in time, their trade value might not be perfect because it's fluctuating over such a, a large period of time. But just something to point out that, you know, if you look at the site six months from now and Bobby Witt Jr. has $150 million surplus, uh, it's not necessarily a bug. It's kind of a, kind of a feature, I guess you could say, yeah, yeah, of yeah. just, you know, hey, it's an 11-year deal. If you make a one-war change in the year one projection, it's going to wildly change the projections for the rest of the deal and that's just kind of how it works and over the course of the deal it's probably going to even itself out yeah um and you know it's time weighted right so you know it's not going to change after a month but if you know to your point if it changes after like six months or you know pretty much the season yes you'll see a significant effect because that weighting will start to take more and more precedent right all right let's go to the other significant extension uh it's kind of in the in the other direction um Jose Altuve to the Astros. Uh, it's a five-year extension, $125 million guarantee. And yeah, th this covers his age, uh, I believe, 35 to 39 seasons. Do I have that right? Yeah. Uh, so, so this is his late 30s. And I think you can look at a Jose Altuve and say that he's going to age better than the average player. Um, I think you could also look at a Jose Altuve and say, we don't really know how he's going to age because players with this build haven't really existed recently. So I think you can argue it both ways. Um, at the end of the day, our model has this one as a pretty significant overpay. And, you know, I think that tracks. I think that was kind of the general consensus after the deal was announced. And I think it was also kind of the general consensus that that's fine, right? Like it's, he's a franchise player and this was, clearly you know a jim crane deal of maybe stepping in and, and saying we want to keep this guy around and, and you know it's partially a thank you deal you could look at it as well of he was criminally underpaid for the first chunk of his career and now he's going to make it up on the back end so yes does it seem a little bit high absolutely is it potentially going to cause problems for them as they try to lock up you know alex bregman and framber valdez and kyle tucker in the next couple seasons yeah, it, it might cause some issues there, but I also think they're going to be fine with it. I, I think they just wanted to have him around for the rest of his career, make him a, a lifelong Astro, a, a possible Hall of Famer, and I think that's fine. Yeah, I mean, look, we talked about second basemen and how the market tends to devalue them. 
So that's a bit of a factor here. Obviously, the biggest factor is age with Altuve now is, he, is he's getting well into his 30s in the course of this next contract. Um, you're going to expect significant decline. So that's why we had five years fair value at 96. So it's definitely an overpay. And Jim Crane definitely, once he gets involved, he does tend to overpay for the guys he likes. And that's really all it is. And, you know, he's marketable. He's kind of the face of the franchise. You know, he's got a factor in the ticket sales and so on. People like him. He's fun to watch. All of that is good. So you can just sort of say, yeah, and we want him for clubhouse chemistry and because he's our guy. All of that is totally justifiable, so I have no issues whatsoever with it. Yeah, agreed. Okay, let's get into some quick hits now. Um, kind of stop me when you want to, John. So okay. Theo Epstein has joined the Fenway Sports Group as a partial owner and senior advisor. Um, there's been some additional reporting since this news broke that, you know, he's not going to be super involved in the day-to-day -day with the team necessarily. Uh, he will just kind of be an advisor there. Um, but he does have a strong relationship with Craig Breslow, who's now uh, the Red Sox chief baseball op officer. I, I think Epstein was in charge when Breslow signed on with the Cubs and really kind of broke into his front office career there. So, I mean, it's it's a name and a move that gets a lot of headlines because it's Theo Epstein going home back to the Red Sox where he kind of made a name for himself and revitalized that franchise. Um, and it's also a potential step into like the ownership direction for Epstein, which, you know, when you when you're so successful so earlier in your career, where else do you have to go, <laughs> right? Like it, yeah. it didn't seem like he wanted to just be hopping around GMing teams for the rest of his life. So it's interesting though that um, well, first of all, um, yeah, the motivation for Epstein was he gets a piece of the pie, right? He gets equity in the Fenway Sports Group, so now he's and that's going to appreciate value from the looks of things. That includes more than just the Red Sox, so he's going to do very well financially, and that's the big incentive for him. Um, but it also gives him kind of a seat at the table, and that's the curious part, because, you know, they hired Breslow, who was an assistant GM, and so the natural next step would be GM, but they gave him the president of baseball operations job, which is in a way kind of a two-step jump. Um, but he's kind of still, you know, it's his first time doing it, right? So that's a lot of responsibility to put on a guy who's never even been at the GM level, much less the Pobo level. So... I just, from the Fenway Sports Group ownership level, I got to feel like, okay, Theo's going to help you out, dude. <laughs> it's just like, um, yeah, he's another guy's team. But I think from Craig Breslow's point of view, it's like, oh, is he going to be looking over my shoulder a lot? Am I being double, you know, I'm going to be questioning every move. I just wonder about that a little bit. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what the actual delineation of responsibilities ends up being here. And what we hear from Theo Epstein or about Theo Epstein if things don't don't turn themselves around for the Red Sox in the near term. Yeah. I, I'm definitely interested to watch this. I think there's a little bit of a reassurance set, um, from the ownership group. It's like, let's just make sure we have an adult in the room to kind of make the hard decisions. Because I think that's why they, they fired Bloom because they got the sense that he wasn't able to make the hard decisions. Yes, we know he traded Mookie uh, early on, but the, his last two deadlines were sort of you know man like is he coming or going we don't know like he couldn't quite make the decision to buy or sell which was pretty obvious to everyone and so i think maybe the reassurance of having epstein in the room was like okay let's make a decision guys and let's stick to it let's plan our course so i think that's the benefit yeah agreed 
Right. Uh, sticking in the division, the Rays extended Eric Neander and Kevin Cash. Uh, we don't know the length of the deals, but they're reportedly long-term deals that'll take them into um, the, the club's new timeline for a stadium in St. Petersburg. Um, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, they've both been very, very successful with the Rays. Uh, we've talked a lot about the Rays kind of brain drain, I guess you could call it of all of these other front offices poaching raise executives to run their own front offices and how successful that's been for the Andrew Friedman's of the world and Peter Bendix this last off season. And, um, Heim Bloom was one of those guys, right. And, uh, James click, mm -hmm. it, you could, you could sit here listing know. those names off yeah. forever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Eric Neander has been the one to stick around and he's doing a pretty good job. He's stuck to the raise mentality and he seems to have a really good working relationship with Kevin cash. So, yeah, makes sense to lock them both up and, and get some stability in that front office. Oh, my God. This is such a smart move. I mean, yeah, if there's one guy that you would think, you know, deserves all the raise you can give him, it's Neander because he's done an amazing job. And then Cash as well. And those two are obviously joined at the hip and really in sync. So this makes perfect sense. So the owner, I got to give credit for the ownership for recognizing that because, um, of course, Neander has been, you know, offered many other jobs and he's turned it down. And so the owner knows this and and basically said, okay, I'm going to make sure you're happy and lock you up so that you can continue to run the show. And he's running a great show. So that has domino effects down the line, right? So in their whole system. So in other words, the whole raise way, which by the way, we just put a, published an article on the whole raise um, methodology. Um, check it out if you, if you haven't yet. Um, that's going to continue for a long time. So I'm sure raise fans are happy about that. Yep, I was just about to bump that okay. article from, from John Maloche, <laughs> yep. uh, another new BTV contributor, diving into the Rays model of success. That will be linked in the show notes here. Um, but yeah, there's if you're an owner and you employ Eric Neander and his job is build me a contender as cheaply as you can, you can't be anything but thrilled with the job yep. that he's done so far. So it's a no-brainer that if you're going to invest in someone, invest in him. And, and maybe that's... You know, if we had more time, we could get into the, you know, the pros and cons of that approach from like a baseball perspective and all the all the roster shuffle. And, you know, maybe it would be nice if Eric Neander had a little bit of money to spend and see how much better the Rays could be. But that's that's not something we have time for right now. Um, yeah. Just a couple more. Uh, the Padres signed Wandy Peralta. The reason I'm pointing this out is because it's a very strange contract. Um, it's a quote-unquote four-year deal, four-year $16.5 million, but it's really a one-year $3.3 million deal and then consecutive player options for the next three years um, at $4.25 million, million and then $4.45 million for the last two. So it's, it's again, it's one of these creative, like, choose-your-own-path type deals where, you know, if it's if Wandy pitches well then it's a one-year deal, and he goes to hit the open market and try and get a longer-term deal. If he pitches poorly, then he gets basically three more chances to pitch well. And, you know, it makes all the sense in the world for Peralta because a $16.5 million guarantee as, like, your worst-case scenario is honestly better than I expected him to get here. Uh, and if he pitches really well and thinks he can do better, then he can go do that after a year or two years or three years or, or four years. like. It's just all of the leverage is in his court, really, on this one. Yeah, it's interesting when I checked our model. The model had four years of him at 16, so it's pretty pretty darn close. Um, and so it it thinks, because he's worth $4 million, uh, uh, basically a year, 
you know, there's some fluctuation in that. And there's some aging curve stuff in that. But basically, we just sort of modeled it as if he was going to be with the team all four years because you can see a scenario where, like, yeah, as he declines, I'll still just take the certain money. I'll just take the certain money. So that's what we modeled out. Um, but, yeah, it's very close to fair. Yeah, just an interesting contract to point out mm -hmm. because, especially coming from the Padres um, and kind of how creative they've had to be at times with the luxury tax and with their payroll in general. So um, quick note on the Padres here as well. They have continued to be connected to Jaron Duran of the Red Sox. I'm not sure how cleanly a deal fits there or if it would have to be a three-team deal or what. And it's also, it feels a little bit late in the offseason to be talking about a significant move like that one considering you know then what would the red sox do in the outfield they would have kind of a spot to fill there um but on the flip side the padres really haven't replaced juan soto in their outfield they yeah. are still looking pretty empty there and i don't know it seems like there's just across baseball a lack of urgency this offseason and maybe it's a domino effect from those top free agents that we talked about at the beginning but there's a lot of teams that are in this spot of like okay Pitchers and catchers are reporting like this week, next week. Why do you still not have a major league outfielder? Like, <laughs> yeah, like right. what's what's happening here? Yeah, they've got Tatis basically roaming the entire outfield at this point. Mm -hmm. But but roster resource has Cal Mitchell, a non uh, a non forty man guy, mm -hmm. as their starting left fielder, and Jose Asagar, who's you know a bench guy, fifth outfielder guy. <laughs> like yeah, they need to fill two spots, um, and there's nothing really obvious on the farm unless they can unless they want to convert jackson merrill who may be ready he's a shortstop but they you know shortstops are good athletes and you can say all right maybe you could try him in the outfield um that's what they did with tatis after all so um you know but yeah clearly they need something um you know and the red sox i still can't quite figure out what their plan is uh are they competing this year are they not competing um you know, they would want what what I do believe there. They want sustainable sort of competitiveness, right? So sustainable success, since that's what Breslow's been saying all along. So why would you trade a guy with five years of control unless you think, okay, well, he's at peak value right now, so we're going to turn him into other things that we need? Because they do have some other young outfielders. they got Roman Anthony coming. He's a bit, you know, he's probably a year away, but maybe at the end of the season he debuts. Something like that. So maybe they can sort of say, okay, we've got enough in the in the hopper that says we can kind of withstand this loss, but we can maybe get some pitching, maybe we can get something else that we need. You know, it's probably just an exploration just like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and AJ Preller has not shied away from late off-season slash mid-spring big deals. He, he made the Craig Kimbrell deal like the day before opening day. So. Right. It's a possibility. Um, the Angels have signed Aaron Hicks to a one-year deal. Normally, this would not be making headlines, but they are reportedly you know, planning on playing him every day, and he is just making the big league minimum since he's still technically under his Yankees contract when they, when they cut him loose. So, you know, it's no risk, really. You know, if he doesn't perform in spring training, they can just cut him at no real cost to them. But the you know, caveat to that is he's suddenly blocking Joe Adele. And we've talked a lot about Joe Adele over the last couple of years on this podcast and just how his trade value has declined a lot faster than maybe the general public thought. And at this point, it's pretty much a guarantee that he's kind of a, kind of a zero, you know, he's, he's out of options. I'm pretty sure. And 
his team is signing Aaron Hicks to play ahead of him. That's that's the the nail in the coffin, I guess I would say that yeah. they don't have any faith in him. They haven't been able to find a trade partner for him. He's either going to be sitting on their bench or he's going to be cut or traded in some minor deal. He's not going to be bringing any significant return back in a trade. So one thing we've learned over the years, as you know, Josh, is, you know, watch what we do, not what we say. If the moves we make are saying something that carries weight, right? So you can tell, you can hype up Joe Adele all you want at this point, um, but the moves that they're making are like they don't believe in them, right? So um, we have Odell's value at 1.2. As you pointed out, he's out of options. So if he does not stick on the team, he's a DFA at this point, which is why his value is very low. He has not solved his strikeout problems. Yes, I know when he goes back to the mountainous air of Salt Lake City, he hits bombs. Great. That's what he's always done. He's a bad outfielder defensively, and he continues to swing and miss a lot. So a um, lot of top prospects before him have burned and <laughs> crashed and burned. This would not be a surprise in that sense because there's a long list of them before him. So, but this may be his time. Yeah. Yep. It's unfortunate, but like I said, this is kind of just the nail in the coffin there. We've, we've known this for a while. Um, last two notes. First of all, we mentioned Adam Ottavino in the past on this podcast and how he declined a player option and then re-signed with the Mets for less money. Quick clarification there. His player option was heavily deferred. So in, in terms of present money, it's about the same. And then I also read a report that he didn't want to accept that player option and then get traded somewhere he didn't want to be. He wanted to kind of have his own agency. And so maybe that cost him a few bucks in the end. But, you know, makes sense, yeah. all things yeah. considered, as he gets near the end of his career here. So right. just wanted to clarify that. And then last note is we have one other article we didn't mention in this one, but will also be linked in the show notes, is from Ethan Pachersky, another new BTV contributor. Can the Guardians trade their way into contention? And I, I thought, found that one to be a very good read. I will have that linked along with the other two articles. Would highly recommend all of them as you, um, you know, go into your week and, and wait for baseball to come back. Yeah, we, we have a lot of, of good young writers in the fold now. We sort of put out a call and, and thankfully a lot, a lot of folks responded. And so we've been running uh, basically two a week. Um, we'll continue that for a while. So check them out and we'll continue to, to roll out. I'm trying to make the... Topics interesting and timely. Uh, obviously, where are we at in the off season? There's some reflection on, okay, what did the Braves do? What did the, you know? And you know, there's some off season reflection types. So I will, like I said, publish the Mariners one. And so there's a um, there's a few of those um, still to come. And there's some looking ahead types as well, like um, you know what the upcoming trade candidates might be or next year's free agent. So we'll we'll sort of balance the topics based on timeliness as well. But it's good to have a lot of fresh new faces in the fold. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's some really interesting perspectives and obviously all with kind of the BTV mentality, but some different takes on things that I hadn't really considered before. So lots of good stuff already coming through the pipeline and lots of good stuff on the way. Yep. All right. Anything else uh, to get to today? No, we're good. Um, when we publish this, the Super Bowl will be over. So congratulations, whoever. I think one of the red teams <laughs> is going to win. <laughs> Exactly. All right. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed their Super Bowl festivities. Um, but otherwise, that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the off season. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.